welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Congratulations for making it through the last episode on early breast cancer. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is the breast module of the surgical curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is still early breast cancer, but we're going to move on to the treatment of early breast cancer. Just briefly, before we do that, I do have a corrections corner from my last episode, which is I stated that invasion into the chest wall includes invasion into the pec major muscles when talking about staging of early breast cancer. According to the AJCC guidelines, that's incorrect. And invasion of the pec muscles does not constitute chest wall invasion. Chest wall invasion refers to invasion of the intercostal muscles, serratus anterior, and does not include the pec major or minor muscles. I had to mentally prepare myself before moving on to this part of the topic. Based on everything I've read, this is the area that has recently had the most development and therefore is the most complex. I'll try to be really clear on which parts of management seem to be pretty well agreed upon and which parts there seem to be some controversy around. If you get anything out of today's discussion, make sure it is that Breast cancer should be managed by a multidisciplinary team and that every patient deserves their own individual approach. So management of early breast cancer. In general terms, we can think about management involving management of the breast, management of the axilla, and the consideration of neoadjuvant systemic treatment or adjuvant systemic treatment. I'm going to first start by going through the different types of treatment and a little bit of detail about them as well as their indications and contraindications. And at the end, I will try to run through a little bit of a decision-making platform for when and who to use the different types of treatment for. Let's start by talking about breast surgery. The main aim of the surgery or management of the breast is to try and eradicate the tumor as well as any local extension. There's two main types of breast surgery that we offer women. The first is breast conserving surgery and the second is mastectomy. Starting with breast conserving surgery, this surgery can be offered to women where a complete local excision of their tumour and any associated DCIS can be achieved whilst still maintaining a good cosmetic outcome. Other important things to note when we talk about breast-conserving surgery include that in order to offer a woman breast-conserving surgery, they are also committing to post-operative radiotherapy to the breast because the original trials that demonstrated the oncologic safety of breast-conserving surgery versus mastectomy found that if you do a, for example, wide local excision and you don't follow it with radiotherapy, it doesn't have similar outcomes to mastectomy. So it's really important that women understand that they are committing to post-operative radiotherapy if they want to undergo breast-conserving surgery. Other considerations 
when considering breast conserving surgery is looking at whether or not you can achieve a good cosmetic outcome. In general, there used to be some cutoffs in the size of the tumor that would be appropriate for breast conserving surgery versus mastectomy, but now we would consider more the tumor to breast ratio. So you want to have a look at the size of the tumor compared to the size of the woman's breast. And with some of the more advanced oncoplastic operations that we now have the ability to do, a tumor can be up to 50% of the size of the breast and still be considered for breast conserving surgery. Other things to think about is the location of the tumor, um, so what quadrant it's in and whether it is closely associated with the nipple areola complex. Importantly, patients may have their own preferences about what they would like. So some patients don't want to consider breast conserving surgery and would rather just have a mastectomy and others are really keen for breast conserving surgery, although they may not be the best candidate. So patient preference is important. Some contraindications to breast conserving surgery um, include a inflammatory breast cancer. Um, really, this should be treated with a mastectomy. There's some relative contraindications, so patients who have multicentric disease, so more than one tumor in um, multiple quadrants of the breast. This used to be thought of to be a contraindication, but um, there have been recent studies that have shown similar rates of local recurrence for patients who have um, multifocal disease as long as you are able to fully excise um, the multifocal disease. And for example, a round block excision may be used to remove two tumors in two um, quadrants and then bring the breast tissue back together to still provide a good um, cosmetic outcome. Other things to consider is uh, whether a tumor is a T4 tumor, so whether it's locally invading the chest wall, that may preclude you from being able to offer breast conserving surgery. Um, if a patient has had persistent positive margins, so um, has had more and more uh, local resections but continues to have positive margins, this patient should potentially be considered for a mastectomy. If a patient's unable to have post-operative radiotherapy, these are patients who may have had uh, previous breast cancer in that breast, who may have had Hodgkin's lymphoma um, or radiotherapy for other reasons. And there is a relative contraindication that some patients with collagen vascular diseases, especially those who have lung involvement, may be high risk for complications from radiotherapy. So they uh, may need to be considered closely about whether they would be appropriate for radiotherapy. Um, and uh, other relative contraindications include if the patient has a strong family history or a known mutation that puts them at high risk of recurrent breast cancers, in which case you may um, talk to that patient about a prophylactic mastectomy. Obvious benefits of breast conserving surgery include that the cosmetic result is better and uh, there's been multiple studies that look at patient outcomes after breast conserving surgery versus mastectomy, and there's definitely higher rates of um, preservation of body image uh, in patients with breast conserving surgery. There's also fewer complications, and it may be more cost-effective than mastectomy. It definitely avoids the need for reconstructive surgery and further operations from that point of view. Um, and like I said before, it has a similar oncological outcome to mastectomy as long as uh, radiotherapy is also given postoperatively. Going into more detail about breast-conserving surgery... The simplest or most basic operation that we talk about is a wide local excision of the tumour. This means that we want to remove the tumour as well as a margin of healthy tissue around the tumour. 
it's a little controversial how big the margin should be. Uh, in Australia, we would want a margin between one to two millimeters for DCIS as well as for an invasive cancer. Although in other countries, they are happy with ink on margin for the um, malignant component. Uh, we will have to ask our invited guest whether one or two millimeters is the cutoff in Australia because there is some variation in the resources I was looking at. If the tumor is palpable, a wide local excision can be done uh, using palpation. And if the tumor is not palpable, then localization can be performed with either a wire or a carbon injection, depending on your institution. If the volume of breast tissue removed is less than 20% of the total breast volume, then this is considered a level one oncoplastic operation and mobilization or local mobilization of the breast plate can be used to approximate the defect. Um, and this is something that all breast surgeons are able to achieve. If between 20 and 50% of the breast volume is being removed, then a more um, complex level two oncoplastic surgery is likely to be required in order to maintain cosmesis of that breast. And what does that mean exactly? So a level two oncoplastic breast reconstruction um, involves removal of excess skin or dual plane mobilization of breast tissue in order to approximate or close a defect. Um, it's often based upon uh, mammoplasty techniques, so techniques that used to be used to reduce breast size, um, and the approach depends on the location and size of the tumor. When considering if a patient is suitable for a level two reconstruction, it's important to consider how dense her breasts are. So um, we briefly talked about density of breasts, I think, in the um, uh, mammogram segment on one of our earlier episodes. But basically, um, breasts that are very dense or extremely dense, category three or four, um, have a much lower risk of necrosis with that dual plane mobilization um, versus breasts that are only fatty or have scattered fibroglandular tissue, um, which have a much higher risk of necrosis, fat necrosis um, of mobilized tissue. So it's important to consider this if you are considering a patient for um, mobilization or oncoplastic level two reconstruction. Additional measures such as local flaps, lipofilling or fat transfer can be used in conjunction with mobilization of breast tissue in order to improve the cosmesis. Potential complications of breast conserving surgery include a hematoma, which may require evacuation, infection, although these are rare, an incomplete excision, which can occur in up to 10 to 25% of cases and requires uh, further excision, there is some discussion about whether additional margins should be taken um, at the time of the operation. And although this does reduce uh, incomplete excision rates, it does increase the volume of breast tissue that is removed. Um, people can get seromas, especially in the um, space or if there's a space left. Um, and some patients will have a poor cosmetic result, which obviously depends on the extent of surgical excision or the volume lost. However, these patients can go on to have further surgery to address the problem. Moving on now to talk about mastectomy. Mastectomy was the traditional operation for breast cancer, and it was known as the Halstead mastectomy, which was a pretty radical operation, including the removal of the entire glandular breast, as well as the pec muscles and an auxiliary lymph node dissection. 
Nowadays, we have a few other options. Mastectomy is indicated in patients who are not suitable for breast-conserving surgery. So this includes inflammatory breast cancer, which I touched on earlier. It may also include multifocal tumours if these aren't able to be removed and maintain a good cosmetic outcome. If there's a large tumour-to-breast ratio, especially if the tumour is more than 50% of the breast, if there's coexistence of extensive DCIS, um, especially if there's extensive microcalcifications or concerning-looking microcalcifications throughout the breast, which when biopsied or when there's multiple biopsies taken of those, they turn out to be DCIS. If there's been prior breast radiotherapy, as we talked about, then the patient cannot have breast-conserving surgery as they are required to have radiotherapy post-op. There's the relative contraindication of those uh, collagen diseases such as scleroderma where they may not be able to have radiotherapy as well. If there's tumours that have very ill-defined margins um, or that seem extensive um, on imaging, then that may also be an indication for a mastectomy. If the tumour involves the nipple or overlying skin, especially if this is extensive, and another key indication is patient preference. Operative options include the Halstead or radical mastectomy I mentioned earlier, although this is not routinely done anymore. Other options include a modified radical mastectomy, which is essentially removal of all of the glandular breast tissue, excluding the underlying pec muscles, and this can be combined with a sentinel lymph node dissection or an auxiliary dissection. A simple mastectomy can be performed, which is simply removal of all of the glandular breast tissue, but no nodes. A skin-sparing mastectomy can be performed, and this is usually combined with a reconstructive procedure, and this involves taking of the nipple areola complex with the breast tissue. And a nipple and skin-sparing mastectomy is a further option, which is only suitable for women with small to moderate breasts and without much ptosis, and basically involves leaving the skin envelope and the nipple areola complex. Again, this is often combined with a reconstructive procedure and contraindications would clearly involve um, any involvement of the skin, Paget's disease of the nipple, bloody nipple discharge or inflammatory breast cancer. Whether or not you combine a mastectomy with an immediate reconstruction or whether you consider that patient for a delayed reconstruction is quite complex and I think we will probably need another episode to talk about reconstructive surgery. Complications from mastectomy include a wound infection, hematoma which may need to be evacuated, Commonly, there can be seroma of the chest wall and the axilla if there's been uh, concurrent axillary surgery. Patients can have postoperative pain, especially uh, of the chest wall. There's an obvious impact of mastectomy on body image and self-esteem, and um, that's where reconstruction comes into the picture. There can be necrosis of spared tissue, so especially in the context of skin and nipple sparing procedures, uh, the skin and nipple can undergo necrosis if there's issues with blood supply, and this is increased if the patient is a smoker, which may be a relative contraindication to not offering that sort of patient this procedure. There can obviously be delayed healing, and this may delay neoadjuvant treatment if immediate reconstruction is used, there can be infection of the prosthesis, there can be donor site morbidity if there's been a flap, and there can be a secondary primary tumour post-mastectomy as not all breast tissue is removed at mastectomy. 
Moving on now to management of the axilla. This is a pretty complex topic, so please let me know if you have a different idea than I do about what this entails. But essentially, management of the axilla aims to eradicate any metastatic disease within the axillary nodes and therefore to control local axillary disease. It's also important for assessment of the nodal status or staging of the nodes, which helps with evaluating prognosis as well as guides adjuvant treatment and can help to improve the patient's overall survival. At the time of diagnosis of a breast cancer, a patient should undergo assessment of their axilla by clinical and radiological means. So this involves a clinical examination of the axilla by the surgeon, as well as usually an ultrasound investigation of the nodes. If there are any clinically palpable or radiologically suspicious nodes, then they require further biopsy with either an FNA or a core biopsy. And if this is positive, then the axilla should be managed as though the patient has had a positive sentinel node or that the axilla is involved and is positive. And this usually means that the patient would undergo an axillary lymph node dissection at the time of their breast surgery but this is controversial and we will go into this a little bit more later. If there is no clinically or radiologically suspicious nodes, then the axilla is presumed to be negative at the time of surgery and the patient undergoes a sentinel node biopsy. The indications for a sentinel lymph node biopsy is a diagnosed invasive malignancy in the breast. The fact that they have a clinically negative axilla, because if it was positive, as we've just discussed, you would treat the axilla as if it was positive. And patients who are having a mastectomy for ductal carcinoma in situ should also undergo a sentinel lymph node biopsy as a proportion of these patients will be found to have an invasive cancer in their mastectomy specimen and it's difficult to perform a sentinel lymph node biopsy once the breast has already been removed. A sentinel lymph node biopsy requires localization of the sentinel node and there are multiple ways to do this. In Australia, the two techniques that I've come across most frequently are the use of lymphocentigraphy and the use of a blue dye injection. And studies have shown that using two different modalities to help identify the sentinel node increase the positive sentinel node removal rate. Lymphocentigraphy is typically done by the radiologists, usually in the morning of the day that the patient is going to be going to theatre. It involves injection of technetium 99M labelled protein, which is injected usually in the sub-areola location. And the radiologist will then do an imaging study to give you a map and confirm that the uh, technetium 99 is travelling to a sentinel node. They will often do um, markings on the patient in two or three planes to help you identify where that node may be located. And it's interesting uh, to have a look at those imagings preoperatively to make sure that there is just one node or whether there's multiple nodes and that they are in the axilla. During the time of surgery, we use a gamma probe to identify uh, the nodes that have the greatest radiation count. The blue dye injection um, is often done um, by the surgeon or the assistant. Typically, this would be done uh, five minutes uh, before the operation is due to start, um, before scrubbing in once the patient is already anesthetized. 
It involves an injection. Uh, in Australia, we often use methylene blue, although most of the studies were done using isosulfan blue. Um, we use methylene blue and three to five mils will be injected. Um, it's a bit controversial, but some people will do this in the peritumoral location, so injecting around the tumor, and some people will do a subareola injection of the blue dye. And after this has been injected, uh, the assistant will then massage the breast for five minutes to encourage that blue dye to travel through the lymph vessels into the sentinel node. That comment about uh, where to actually inject the blue dye, um, it really depends who you're working with. There has been some research that has shown that a peri-areolar injection will localize the sentinel node just as much as a peritumoral injection will. And it may be helpful, especially if you have multiple tumors, to just do the peri-areolar injection. Um, some surgeons I've worked with like to make sure that the blue dye is removed, so they will inject around the tumor. Um, but really, I think it is surgeon preference. The operation to remove a sentinel lymph node involves a incision usually at the base of the hair-bearing skin in the axilla, although depending on where your incision was placed for either breast-conserving surgery or with the lateral aspect of a mastectomy wound is you may use that wound in order to access the axilla. Uh, a combination of using the gamma probe to guide where your dissection is in the axilla, as well as uh, visually, if you happen to identify any blue lymphatics, you can trace those down towards a sentinel node. The idea is that you would try to find nodes that are both hot with the gamma probe and also blue from the dye injection. And most sentinel nodes you'll find at level one. However, they can be found in other locations such as level two or three nodes or even in the interpectoral or intramammary locations. In addition to removing sentinel nodes that are hot and blue, if there are any clinically suspicious nodes encountered, so large nodes, matted nodes, uh, hard nodes, then they should also be removed. How many nodes should you remove? There's no clear guideline on this, and again, we can ask our invited guests this question, but from looking through a few resources, it looks like two is better than one. So if you remove two sentinel lymph nodes, then this decreases the false negative rates. Probably removing four or more, more nodes will increase the morbidity associated with the procedure without lowering the false negative rate. Um, so probably two to three sentinel nodes is better than one sentinel node. However, you shouldn't remove a node if it's not hot or blue just to get two or three. Um, and once you've adequately sampled sentinel nodes and any clinically suspicious nodes um, and think that if the axilla is involved that you're proving that, then that's probably enough as well as you're going to discuss the outcome of that and an MDT and plan further management from there. There's been a number of studies that had looked into sentinel lymph node biopsy compared to an auxiliary lymph node dissection in breast cancer. Um, this includes the SNAC-1 trial, uh, the Milan trial, NSABP-B32, the Almanac trial, 
and the GIVOM trial. And all of these trials basically compared doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy um, versus an auxiliary dissection, where if the sentinel lymph node biopsy was negative, you didn't do any further surgery. And if the sentinel lymph node biopsy was positive, you proceeded with an auxiliary dissection. And they demonstrated that there were equivalent rates of overall and disease-free survival. Um, And obviously, the patients who got away with just a sentinel lymph node biopsy had um, much lower morbidity associated with the surgery, so less lymphedema, less morbidity and sensory deficit in that arm. So it's really an accepted management in these patients. Saying all of that, however, it does get a little bit more complicated where Obviously, if a sentinel lymph node is negative, then it's pretty well agreed that you should do nothing. If there's isolated tumor cells, so these are also called in-transit cells and are defined as tumor cells less than 0.2 millimeters in size or less than 200 cells in a lymph node, then these lymph nodes are considered negative and the patient also is not requiring any further axillary surgery. There is um, some controversy when we talk about a positive sentinel lymph node. So these are where there are macrometastases in the lymph node. The traditional teaching and probably the exam answer for the moment is that positive lymph nodes with macrometastases should be managed as a positive axilla and be referred for a axillary lymph node dissection. However, There has been a few trials that have thrown a spanner in the works for that traditional treatment, which includes the Z11 trial you may have heard about, which looked at small cancers, so T1 or T2 in size, less than three centimeters in size, with less than three lymph nodes involved on the sentinel lymph node biopsy, so therefore they only had one or two positive sentinel nodes. And these patients were stratified to either whole breast radiation and systemic treatment, but no further surgery or to auxiliary clearance. It was a non-inferiority study, but they found that observation of the axilla versus axillary lymph node dissection was not inferior when they looked at five-year local recurrence, axillary first recurrence, or overall survival. So this basically open the question about whether or not if you do have positive sentinel nodes, one or two positive sentinel nodes, do you need to proceed with an auxiliary clearance? It's not really thought that this answer has been totally concluded based on this trial. And there are a couple of other trials going on at the moment, which include the POSNOC trial, which is in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, which is similar to the Z11 patients and is hoping to give us a more conclusive answer to that question. For people listening closely, you may have noticed that I haven't commented on micrometastases. So these are metastases in the lymph nodes where clusters measure between 0.2 and 2 millimeters in size. Seems like from the AJCC uh, staging classification that these are considered positive nodes and should be managed as a positive node with whatever treatment is recommended for a positive lymph node. But there is some evidence that maybe that's not necessarily the case and really these patients should be considered in the picture of all of their tumor biology and um, characteristics um, when considering a treatment plan for them. The other question that I'm not really clear on the answer to is what to do if you are unable to identify a sentinel lymph node at the time of biopsy. 
as per the clinical practice guidelines on canceraustralia.gov.au, which is a little bit of an outdated resource, they say that an auxiliary dissection should be performed. I wouldn't say that we routinely consent patients for auxiliary dissection as a backup when doing a sentinel lymph node, and I haven't seen this done without a discussion with the patient, so I'd be interested to know what our special guest would think about this topic. Another topic to consider when looking at auxiliary staging that's becoming more and more of an issue is what to do in terms of auxiliary staging and when to do it in the setting of neoadjuvant treatment. So if the patient has a clinically and radiologically negative axilla, then the options are to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy before they've had their neoadjuvant treatment or after their neoadjuvant treatment. There was some question about whether or not you could potentially miss axillary metastases in the setting of a patient who's had a complete pathological response to their neoadjuvant treatment. Um, And there was some discussion about doing the sentinel node prior to treatment. However, probably the outcome of all of this is that it is safe and reasonable to do the sentinel lymph node biopsy with their definitive surgery after their neoadjuvant treatment. And from what I've read, I think that would be my exam answer. The more complex question is if you have a positive axilla when you're working up the cancer. So that means you've either clinically or radiologically identified suspicious nodes and you've done a biopsy which demonstrates a metastasis in a lymph node in the axilla. So definitely a clip should be placed at the time of the biopsy of the lymph node so that you can later identify the lymph node if there is a complete pathological response. The traditional answer and probably the safest exam answer is that those patients would require an auxiliary lymph node dissection after they have completed their neoadjuvant treatment and are having their concurrent breast surgery. But an obvious question is if up to 40% of patients will have a complete pathological response to their chemo, do they need to undergo the morbidity of an auxiliary lymph node dissection? Some people advocate for a restaging of the axilla with what has been labelled a targeted axillary dissection. And this involves a dual localised sentinel lymph node biopsy, so using at least two modalities to identify the nodes removing at least two to three sentinel nodes and any clipped nodes, and to redefine a positive node to include even nodes that only have isolated tumor cells. So in this case, if they go from node positive to node negative and they've had a targeted axillary dissection, then some people would say that they then don't need to go on and have an axillary dissection. However, if they have residual disease with that targeted axillary dissection, then they should go on to an axillary lymph node dissection. But I think that this is definitely controversial and the safest answer would be that these patients have had a positive axilla and that they should go on to have an axillary lymph node dissection. And it'll be interesting to see what research comes out about this in the coming years. So briefly touching on an axillary lymph node dissection, typically for breast cancer, this involves a level one and level two resection. So if we remind ourselves, the level one nodes are lateral to the pec minor muscle, the level two nodes are behind the pec minor muscle, and the level three nodes, also known as the infraclavicular nodes, are medial to the pec minor muscle. The teaching would be that you would remove level one or two. However, there is space to remove level three if you find suspicious nodes and also an inspection should be made of the uh, 
pectoral, um, intrapectoral nodes um, between pec minor and pec major, as well as um, ensuring that there is no other palpable lymph nodes that feel suspicious at the end of the operation. The indications for this is a clinically positive axilla, which we talked about earlier. If there's evidence of axillary node metastases on an FNA or core biopsy as part of your workup, if you have a positive central lymph node at intraoperative examination, although a frozen section of central nodes is not routinely done in centers that I've worked in, um, and if there is an auxiliary local recurrence. And then we also have this question about whether you would proceed with a axillary lymph node dissection if you could not find the central node, which I will leave as a question mark for today. Basically, this operation uh, is done with an incision at the base of the hair-bearing skin, can also be done using the mastectomy wound or a contiguous wound with a breast-conserving surgery if that gives you the adequate access. Um, It's usually done with the patient's arm at 90 degrees and the clavipectoral fascia is incised to enter the axilla proper. It's key to identify the special structures in the axilla prior to using any cutting uh, diathermy or cautery to make sure that these aren't injured. So usually you would identify the axillary vein, which is the superior limit of the dissection, as well as the thoracodorsal bundle, which is on the posterior wall of the uh, axilla on the surface of latissimus dorsi, the long thoracic nerve, which runs on the chest wall to innervate serratus. It's also Good to identify the intercostobrachial nerves. These usually run transversely across the axilla and can be difficult to uh, keep in an axillary dissection. And there is some controversy about whether or not that should be attempted or whether they should be taken, but we can leave that for another day. Um, And also you should identify the medial pectoral nerve, which wraps around the lateral edge of pec major. And basically all of the uh, lymph nodes and fatty content of the axilla should be removed, level one and level two. Some people mobilize inferiorly to superiorly. Some people start at the axillary vein and go down um, and dissection should be used uh, mostly blunt until all those structures have been identified and then using uh, careful identification and ligation of small lymphatics and veins and vessels with clips and cautery. At the end of the operation, again, you should re-inspect the cavity for any palpable lymphadenopathy um, and also look between the pec muscles to make sure there's no missed lymph nodes there. And most people would leave a drain um, for this operation in in Australia with it being removed once there's been two 24-hour periods consecutively with less than 50 mils of output. Some obvious potential complications of this operation are lymphedema um, of the arm, Uh, seroma collecting in that axillary space, limitations in shoulder and arm mobility, injury to the long thoracic nerve, which leads to a winged scapula, or injury to the thoracodorsal bundle with weakness of the latissimus dorsi muscle, um, which helps with adduction and extension of the arm. The intercostal brachial nerves, if they're taken or damaged, can lead to a sensory deficit on the upper inner arm uh, or paresthesia. Moving on now to other treatments that we have for breast cancer, I'm firstly going to discuss radiotherapy. 
Radiotherapy has been proven to substantially reduce local recurrence rates and improve outcomes in breast cancer. And it's really important to make sure that the oncological considerations of treating breast cancer are a priority and that decisions about radiotherapy are not influenced by whether or not a patient wants reconstructive surgery or not. Radiotherapy can be used in a wide range of situations when it comes to breast cancer. The obvious times or indications for its use include following breast cancer surgery, where radiation is given to the whole residual breast. In addition, the EORTC BOOST trial demonstrated that radiotherapy boost to the tumor bed will um, help improve outcomes in younger patients, patients with a high-risk tumor, such as those with mud margin involvement if they have significant DCIS, uh, hormone receptor negative, or are very large tumors. Um, And they are often um, offered a boost into the tumor bed. It can be given post-mastectomy to the chest wall. Usually this is reserved for high-risk patients, particularly those who had lots of lymph node involvement, very large tumors, or had extensive um, lymphovascular or vascular invasion of their tumor. It can also be used in the setting of a patient who's had neoadjuvant treatment and then gone on to have their definitive breast surgery and should probably be considered in patients who, again, are high risk. So those who may have had a very locally advanced cancer, those who have significant residual disease in their lymph nodes, for example, or within the breast after the neoadjuvant treatment. Radiotherapy can also be given to the axilla, but its role in the setting of a positive axilla is not clear, and the complications of lymphedema are much higher if you give radiotherapy to an axilla that's already had an axillary lymph node dissection. Saying that, however, it may be considered if there's a really high risk of recurrence after axillary lymph node dissection, which may include patients who have extensive extracapsular extension of tumor, a really high number of positive lymph nodes or who have residual disease. Regional nodes, so these include supraclavicular or internal mammary nodes, may be also irradiated and included in the radiation field. There were a couple of studies, that EORTC study and the MA20 studies, that showed some improvement in disease-free survival and overall mortality in high-risk patients who were given radiotherapy to their regional nodes. Uh, But there is some more information that's needed to really guide that treatment. Another question is whether or not radiotherapy to the axilla could be used instead of proceeding with an axillary lymph node dissection if you have a sentinel lymph node that turns up positive in breast cancer. There has been a trial called the AMAROS trial, which includes data out to 10 years, that suggests that there may be similar rates of mortality, disease-free survival, and axillary recurrence rates if you give radiotherapy to the axilla rather than proceeding with a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And I have seen that sometimes used in clinical practice, uh, but again, this really does need to be discussed on a case-by-case basis. Radiotherapy is pretty advanced nowadays. Usually it involves doing a planning CT, which gives the radiation oncologist images to plan uh, where the radiotherapy should be given. 
after this initial planning CT, any changes in the shape of the breast or chest wall can be problematic. So that's where um, a patient may be sent back to clinic if they develop a seroma during their radiotherapy treatment to have this treated. Um, and if a patient has a tissue expander in, then this should not be changed or the size of this should not be changed while they're having their radiotherapy. The radiotherapy is usually given um, on weekdays in 10 to 15 minute sessions and usually is given over about three week period. Um, typically for breast cancer, a 40 gray dose would be given. When we talk about reconstructions and radiotherapy, the main issue to consider is that implants, especially silicone implants in breasts that have been irradiated or are going to be irradiated, um, are, have really high rates of complications such as capsular contraction. And this often requires multiple revisional surgeries. And there is a much less or lower risk of complications with autologous tissue flaps in patients who are going to or who have had radiotherapy. So this needs to be considered. Radiotherapy itself has some side effects. Patients during the treatment or early after treatment may develop fatigue. The skin can get red and um, have some skin color changes and be um, hot and have altered sensation. And patients can also rarely develop a dry cough. Long-term or late complications can include rib tenderness or osteitis, uh, pulmonary toxicity, which is very rare, cardiac toxicity, which is proven as well to be very rare, shrinkage or changes in the size or shape of the breast because of scar tissue and fibrosis development, lymphedema, or damage to any of the intrathoracic organs. However, with the advanced planning they can do now based on imaging studies, this is also very rare. And contraindications to radiotherapy we touched on with breast-conserving surgery, but obviously if patients have had their maximal dose of radiotherapy in the past to the chest, then they're not able to have more. Some vasculitic syndromes, uh, such as scleroderma, lupus, or Sjogren's, can um, lead to complications from radiotherapy, especially if they have lung involvement, so they should be considered closely. Um, and there is a rare condition of inherited hypersensitivity syndrome, which can be a relative contraindication as well to radiotherapy. Another treatment that is used in breast cancer is chemotherapy. It seems to have a pretty wide range of indications, which we'll go into in a bit more detail, and can be given either before surgery, neoadjuvantly, or post-operatively, which is called adjuvant chemotherapy. Indications for post-op chemotherapy include a triple negative breast cancer, HER2 positive tumors, large tumors, especially if they're greater than five centimeters in size, if the patient has positive sentinel lymph node or involved auxiliary nodes. You may also discuss patients who have tumors more than two centimeters in size, if they have a higher grade tumor, so grade two or three tumors, if there's evidence of lymphovascular invasion or perineural invasion in the tumor, if the patient is very young, and if the tumor is hormone receptor negative. These are all indications of potentially worse disease biology and a higher risk of recurrence, and these patients may benefit from chemotherapy. There are some histological subtypes that are quite endocrine unresponsive and may also be considered for adjuvant chemotherapy, and this includes apocrine, medullary, adenoid cystic and metaplastic tumors. 
Usually chemotherapy would be started four to six weeks post-operatively. A typical chemotherapy regime given for breast cancer or a first-line chemotherapy regime would often include an anthracycline, such as doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, and a taxane, such as paclitaxel. Some of the side effects of these chemotherapies, so for an anthracycline, um, include nausea and vomiting, bone marrow suppression, febrile neutropenia, and cardiac toxicity. Taxanes, such as paclitaxel, can cause a hand and foot syndrome, myalgias and arthralgias, alopecia, diarrhea, and can cause a peripheral neuropathy. If a patient is HER2 positive, then they are also a candidate for treatment with trastuzumab, which is a chemotherapy that targets that ERBB2 gene, which is amplified in some breast cancers. And in Australia, this is given in combination with chemotherapy, and preferably this is given either without an anthracycline or um, in sequence with an anthracycline due to concerns for the cardiac toxicity of both drugs. An example regime may be to give doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide third weekly for four cycles, then move on to paclitaxel and trastuzumab weekly for 12 weeks, and then continue with trastuzumab alone for the completion of 52 weeks of treatment. And some side effects of trastuzumab include uh, cardiac toxicity with a decrease in their left ventricular ejection fraction and heart failure. So it's important to have pre-treatment and during treatment information about their cardiac function. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is also used in breast cancer. The principle is you would give neoadjuvant chemotherapy if a patient has a tumor with high risk features, therefore putting that patient at higher risk of having systemic disease at the outset. There are other benefits of neoadjuvant chemotherapy where it may allow downstaging of a tumor, which would either allow breast conserving surgery or change a patient who had a locally invasive cancer into somebody who may actually be operable. Um, And this can lead to either a better cosmetic result or even um, allow a, a patient to have an operable tumor. It also allows an assessment of the treatment response. So depending on how the tumor responds to chemotherapy, this gives you information about the tumor biology and can also guide any further treatment they may need postoperatively. It can also allow time for genetic testing. If you have a patient who's very young, especially young patients with triple negative cancers and a strong family history, where you may be concerned that they have an underlying genetic predisposition to breast cancer. And you can therefore do the genetic testing and have that information when you then start talking about surgery and you may suggest a uh, mastectomy in that patient rather than breast conserving surgery if you had that information. So that really lends itself to a discussion of who you may give neoadjuvant treatment to. So patients who have a locally advanced cancer, so either a large cancer or a locally invasive cancer may be good to refer for neoadjuvant treatment. Patients who have inflammatory breast cancer should definitely be having neoadjuvant treatment before any surgery. Patients who have an early breast cancer but may have a small breast and therefore a large tumor and not be a candidate for breast conserving surgery uh, at the outset, or who due to the size of the tumor versus breast ratio may have a poor cosmetic outcome due to breast conserving surgery, you may consider trying to downstage that tumor with neoadjuvant treatment so that you can then have a better cosmesis with breast conserving surgery. 
It can also be considered in uh, patients with node-positive breast cancers. Some of these patients may proceed to surgery with an auxiliary lymph node dissection, but more and more at MDTs, I'm seeing these patients being referred for neoadjuvant treatment upfront. Um, and patients who may have temporary contraindications to surgery, such as patients who are pregnant or who've had a recent acute medical pathology or who are anticoagulated, they could also proceed with neoadjuvant treatment. I also haven't mentioned that you would potentially consider this uh, more in a patient who had a triple negative tumor or who was HER2 positive, although these patients can have surgery first and have adjuvant treatment after. The last treatment I will discuss today is hormonal treatment or hormonal therapy. I'm going to discuss two types, and these are selective estrogen receptor modulators or estrogen receptor blockers and aromatase inhibitors. So estrogen receptor blockers work by competitively inhibiting the binding of estradiol receptors at some sites, and these include tamoxifen and raloxifen. The use of these drugs has been proven over and over again to improve recurrence-free and overall survival in estrogen receptor positive tumors. It also reduces the rates of a recurrence in the contralateral breast or an additional breast cancer in the other breast. Usually tamoxifen is given as a 20 milligram daily dose and is indicated in any patient who has a hormone receptor positive tumor. It's contraindicated in pregnancy and also in women who have had DVTs or PEs um, or strokes, other um, types of uh, embolic events. Side effects of tamoxifen and raloxifen include hot flushes, vaginal dryness and discharge, increased risk of stroke, DVT and PE, and increased risk of endometrial cancer, can lead to depression and mood instability or fatigue. The duration of use of tamoxifen is uh, initially was recommended to be five years. Um, however, there has been a recent couple of studies, the ATLAS study, adjuvant tamoxifen longer against shorter trial, and the ATOM trial, adjuvant tamoxifen to offer more, which both compared five years to 10 years of treatment and found that extending treatment to 10 years had ongoing reduction in the risk of recurrence, mortality, and overall mortality. Aromatase inhibitors is the other type of hormonal treatment that is offered. This includes anastrozole, letrozole, and exemestane. Aromatase inhibitors basically block the peripheral conversion of synthesized androgens into estrogen, um, which is done using the aromatase enzyme. So they're inhibiting that enzyme. And it's used in patients with um, who don't have intact ovarian function. So they're not making their own estrogens. The only estrogen that's happening is the peripheral conversion of androgens into estrogen. Uh, so by virtue of that, it's indicated in postmenopausal women and contraindicated in premenopausal women. It does have some side effects as well, um, musculoskeletal pains, osteoporosis, so these patients need to be monitored with bone density scanning um, and treatment if they develop reduction in their bone density. There can be increased cardiovascular disease, fatigue and mood instability, and also sexual dysfunction, including a loss of libido and decreased vaginal lubrication. 
There's also been studies into the duration of treatment um, when looking at anastrozole and the MA17R trial looked at the question of five versus 10 years. And the early data is that there is improvement in disease-free survival and reduced rates of contralateral breast cancer if you extend treatment out to 10 years. So I'm seeing this more and more with uh, both groups of drugs that patients are being referred for 10 years of treatment. So yay, we made it through all of the different treatment types. Um, sorry, this has been a bit of a long episode, but just to round it all out, I've done a little bit of a flow chart for what I've sort of figured out could potentially be the treatment pathways for different uh, patients with different uh, tumor biologies. So I'll just briefly take you through that and hopefully that will bring together this episode. So we're talking only about early breast cancer. Obviously, we start with the diagnosis, triple assessment, biopsy, and a clinical, radiological, and if required, uh, pathological assessment of the axilla. So then I've put patients into four groups. There are patients with um, ERPR-positive breast cancers with a negative axilla. There's patients with ERPR-negative breast cancers and a negative axilla. And then we have ERPR-positive breast cancers with a positive axilla and ERPR-negative breast cancers with a positive axilla. And each of these four boxes can either have HER2-positive or HER2-negative. So first thing is that these patients should all be discussed at a multidisciplinary team meeting for their treatment plan to be determined because, as you can tell, there are a lot of different considerations and every patient will be different. But starting with negative axilla, ERPR-positive breast cancers. So after discussion at MDT, they can either go down a pathway of uh, breast-conserving surgery with a sentinel lymph node biopsy, if that's appropriate, or they can undergo mastectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy. And that would be if breast-conserving surgery was contraindicated, so a large tumor to breast ratio, extensive malignant calcifications or DCIS calcifications proven with biopsy, or if you're unable to achieve a clear margin um, on re-excision, or if they're not suitable because of that tumor to breast ratio in a way that will give them good cosmesis. And these patients may be candidates for immediate or delayed reconstruction as well. If the patient has breast conserving surgery, they definitely need to have a whole breast radiotherapy. And after surgery for both groups, whether they've had breast-conserving surgery or mastectomy, um, another MDT discussion should be had. And at that point, a decision can be made about whether that patient may be a candidate for adjuvant endocrine treatment. And given they are ERPR positive, this should definitely occur. If their sentinel lymph node biopsy is negative, then they don't need any further axillary surgery. But if their sentinel lymph node biopsy is positive, then these patients, if we're talking about an exam answer, should probably be referred for an axillary lymph node dissection. A consideration should be made of post-mastectomy radiotherapy if there's evidence of nodal disease, if there's a positive chest wall margin, or if they have high-risk disease. And any patients, even if their sentinel lymph node biopsy is negative, who have high-risk tumor features such as a large tumor over two centimeters in size, high-grade 
two or three um, grade two or three tumors, if there's extensive lymphovascular or perineural invasion, if the patient is very young, and if they are HER2 negative, should also be a potential candidate for adjuvant chemotherapy. That was a lot of information. So let's move on to the second group, which is the still negative axilla, but now ERPR negative breast cancer. So these patients, again, should be discussed at an MDT. And I think these patients probably have three potential pathways. So if a patient, especially if they're a triple negative tumor or if they're ERPR negative but HER2 positive, uh, these patients could potentially be considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, So that's one option after diagnosis. Then they also have the same two other options that I talked about in the first group. So breast conserving surgery with a sentinel lymph node biopsy, if that is surgically appropriate, or mastectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy if breast conserving surgery is contraindicated. If patients undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then they can still, after they've completed that therapy and after rediscussion and MDT, then go down either one of those two surgical pathways. So again, if a patient has breast conserving surgery, they definitely need post-operative whole breast radiotherapy. And then for both groups, after they've had their operation and have been discussed again at an MDT, then you would consider adjuvant chemotherapy for these groups because they're ERPR negative. And if they're HER2 positive, you would also include Herceptin in their adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, Other things that may make this more likely include if they have any of those high-risk features that I discussed previously. Again, if they have a negative sentinel lymph node, they don't need any further axillary surgery. However, if their sentinel lymph node biopsy is positive, then the exam answer is they would undergo an axillary lymph node dissection. And we would also consider post-mastectomy radiotherapy if they had any of those high-risk features I discussed in the first group as well. Moving on now to the positive axilla groups. So the first one is positive axilla with ERPR positive tumor. So these patients, because they have a positive axilla, should undergo staging with a CT, chest pelvis, and a bone scan. And as I briefly mentioned um, last episode, there is now some funding for potentially metastatic breast cancer um, for PET scans in Australia. And so although I haven't seen this used routinely, that's something that may uh, be seen a little bit more. These patients should be considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy being node positive, um, especially if they have larger tumors, high risk features. Um, After they have undergone the neoadjuvant treatment, or if they don't undergo neoadjuvant treatment, they have the same two potential surgical pathways, breast conserving surgery or mastectomy. And because they have positive axilla, the exam answer is that they would undergo an axillary lymph node dissection. Patients who had breast conserving surgery definitely need post-operative radiotherapy. um, And patients who've had mastectomy may have post-operative radiotherapy, depending if they have any high-risk features. And patients can also be offered adjuvant chemotherapy um, given they've got node positive disease, especially if they haven't undergone any neoadjuvant chemotherapy, this would be highly recommended. And because they are ERPR positive, they would also be offered adjuvant endocrine treatment. Again, if they have a HER2 positive tumor, then their chemotherapy regime would include trastuzumab. And the last group is 
positive axilla, but ERPR negative tumors. So again, these patients should be staged with a CT, chest, abdo, pelvis, and bone scan, plus or minus PET scan. And again, discussed at an MDT. These patients would definitely be considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. They are either triple negative tumors or HER2 enriched tumors, and they will definitely benefit from chemotherapy. And more and more, this is being given in the neoadjuvant setting. Again, either post-neoadjuvant treatment or if they go straight to surgery, they have those two options, either breast-conserving surgery or mastectomy. And again, they have a positive axilla, so the exam answer is they would undergo an axillary lymph node dissection. For radiotherapy, if they've had breast-conserving surgery, they definitely get radiotherapy. And if they've had a mastectomy, then you would consider radiotherapy if they had any high-risk features. These patients would, if they hadn't already had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, definitely be offered adjuvant chemotherapy. And because they're ERPR negative, there's no role here for adjuvant endocrine treatment. I did briefly mention during the episode role for nodal basin radiotherapy. So in patients who are node positive, especially if they have lots of nodes involved, then they would definitely be considered for um, radiotherapy to their nodal basins. But again, each of these patients should be discussed at an MDT. I don't think I can say that enough. Finally, we have finished with early breast cancer. I have to say that was a big mountain to face, and I'm really glad that I've managed to get through all of that. I obviously have a number of questions, so I will be looking for a specialist to ask those two uh, in an upcoming episode, and we'll keep you posted. Thanks so much again for listening. I did want to mention as well that if you wouldn't mind rate, review, and subscribing uh, to this podcast, then that means that other people are going to be able to find it more easily. And it's an easy way to support this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!